All right, all right, church, good morning. How are you this morning? All right, you both are doing well, I hear. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, my name is Christian, and I get the privilege this morning of sharing the Word of God. Um, I did not take this lightly. It is one of the greatest honors that I get to do in my life, one of the greatest things I get to do in my life, and I am so thankful. And so this morning, would you open your Bibles with me uh, to Second Samuel? We're going to start at the end of chapter 19, and then we will go all the way to chapter 20. And so as you are opening your Bibles, I just want to remind you, uh, this evening at 6.30, we will have a very special meeting uh, with the Shropshires, and so uh, we really would love to see you here. It is a great time to come and hear from what, you know, from them about what the Lord is doing through their ministry, and so please make sure that you make it a priority. Bring your children. We want your children to hear what the Lord is doing, and so uh, please uh, be here tonight, 6.30. Uh, you will not regret it. Um, anyway, so uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 21 in just a minute, but before we get there... Um, I want, to give you, I want to give you a little bit of context of where we are because uh, it's one of those passages that if I can be honest, if we, if we weren't going through a whole book of the Bible, I probably wouldn't touch, you know, with a 10-foot stick. Um, but the Word of God is good, alive, and life-giving, and we are thankful that we get to spend the day today in this portion of the Word. Um, but anyways, this morning we continue our study of 2 Samuel, and as you may remember last week, Tim unpacked most of chapter 19, where David, after the end of the Civil War, uh, took back his throne and gave mercy to all those who had opposed him. If you read that chapter, it kind of feels like that episode of Oprah Winfrey when she's giving cards. and She's like, you get a card, you get a card. David is like, you get grace, and you get grace, and you get grace. And he just gives mercy to everyone that had betrayed him. And now... Uh, this is the part of the story where as a reader, you just expect everything to fall back into place. You know, the conflict is resolved. David and his kingdom um, are back, and they should live happily ever after, right? I mean, that's how stories work. The thing is, thankfully, the Bible is not only real, but it is also realistic. And as it turns out, life is not like fairy tales. And sin actually hurts people. And the consequences of sin are still to be dealt with. And so though David's kingdom has been restored, we will see this morning the consequences of his sin. We will see how the consequences of his sin continue to wreak havoc in his kingdom. And how even as he, he, he repents and tries to make, things, to make things right, his sin continues to hurt those around him. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which I highly recommend, uh, Tim Keller quotes a New, York, a New York Times article from the year 2002, which is hard to believe is already 21 years ago. This article was written when I was graduating high school. Uh, but anyways, the, the name of the article is The Trouble with Self-Esteem by Lawrence Later. And in it, the author basically says that as a society, we have overestimated, like, overestimated the importance of self-esteem. In the article, she says, self-esteem as a construct, as a quasi-religion, is woven into a tradition that both defines and confines us as Americans. If we were to deconstruct self-esteem to question its value, 
we would be, in a sense, questioning who we are nationally and individually. As a millennial myself, let me tell you, I think she's right. One of the biggest crimes in the eyes of my generation and the generation that follows is saying something that is perceived as bad for self-esteem. Even things as basic as the truth are seen as offensive. The truth, as you know, can be deeply offensive. But to our generation, unfortunately, because it is offensive, it should be quieted. The author tells us that the problem is that people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the source of of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. To put this in biblical language, pride, or what I will call from now on the sin of self-importance, is a sin more pervasive and dangerous than we give it credit for. Now, this was not only true two decades ago when the article was written. I believe the passage today will help us understand and see uh, the dangers of this overcorrection when it comes to self-esteem and the danger of the sin of self-importance if not dealt with even even, uh, for those that are inside the church, those who are part of God's people. This sin, pride, did not wreak havoc only two decades ago, but it continues to do that today. And as we will see in today's passage, it has been doing that since the beginning of time. Would you stand with me this morning as we read from chapter 19, verses 41 through 43. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all of the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David we also have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, that you will speak to us this morning through this passage. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine this word, that you would work in our hearts, that you would bring conviction to our hearts, Lord, from the passage that we will study this morning. We pray that you will build us up through your word, that you would strengthen us through it, and that you would make us more into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would also give us discernment as we hear your word. And if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of Scripture, anything that comes from my own ideas, from my own understanding, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, the first thing that I want you to see is that the sin of self-importance breeds division. Here in the passage that we just read, we see two factions. Once again, two factions fighting. This time around, no one is fighting for the throne. No one is trying to take David's kingdom. As a matter of fact, the conflict this morning is a lot pettier than any other conflict we've seen up until this point. The men of Israel are throwing a fit because the men of Judah escorted David back over the Jordan River. Quite honestly, this, I believe, is a glorified version of the fight that we all had with our siblings growing up, which is who gets to ride shotgun. Remember that? Both of these groups want to ride shotgun with David. 
They want to be the group that escorted the king back to his palace. But really, there wasn't even much to be gained other than bragging rights. All that they could have achieved from, uh, from walking David over the Jordan was just to brag about it. Honestly, it's a really petty argument. They're fighting over something that is vastly unimportant. In paper, like I said, it looks petty, silly, and childish, doesn't it? The problem, though, is that this is us. We, too, are often tempted to want the recognition we think we deserve. Isn't that true? We all have this innate need to sit at the cool kid's table. And we feel that we were left, and, and when we feel that we were left out, it wreaks havoc in our hearts, which then wreak havoc in our relationships. This is dangerous, precisely because it's so silly. You know, when things like this happen, we tend to roll our eyes at it instead of confronting it because it just seems childish and silly. Now, I want to be clear that um, I believe that the intent of the author this morning or from this passage that we will be studying is to show us how David's kingdom is still unstable because of his sin. As Nathan prophesied in chapter 12, you may remember back in chapter 12, Nathan prophesied to David that because of his sin, the sword would not depart his house. And here we still see that going on, what is it, uh, seven chapters later, eight chapters later. With that said, I believe that this passage also illustrates this temptation of the sin of self-importance and the effects that it has on the people of God if left unchecked. You see, the men of Israel and the men of Judah were not the first people to fall into this trap of self-importance, nor were they the last. Jesus' own disciples would later argue about who of them was the greatest. And James and John's mom actually would even ask Jesus for them to have the greater seats of honor. People fight for self-importance. As people, we want to be important. This is unfortunately still the case outside the church, but also inside the church. You see, even the followers of Jesus struggle with this sin. In the same way that the people of Israel and the people of Judah argued as to who was closer to the king, in the church today we see groups of people who claim having exclusivity on the king. These are people who are continuously looking at their brother with suspicion and convincing themselves that they are somehow better and closer to the king than those over there. Now, church, I've got to tell you, I love Trinity, and unapologetically so. And that's a good thing. I am also very passionate about doctrine, and I care deeply about the truth. And as a church here, we will passionately and unapologetically defend the word of God and the truths found in it. So I'm not saying this morning that we shouldn't worry about those who are perverting the truth. I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry about false teachers because the Bible in the New Testament warns us against them over and over again. What I'm saying, though, is that seeking unity with other parts of the body should be our default, not division, not conflict not fighting. We should lean towards unity as much as possible. The problem is when people, and especially those inside the church, make an issue of everything. They make everything, every issue of highest importance. 
You see, in Scripture, there are truths that we have to defend tooth and nail. Truths like the Trinity, the authority of Scripture, the divinity of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement. These are truths that we as a church will defend, and we will even divide over, and we should. These are truths that we will defend. But also, there are issues of secondary or even tertiary importance. And these are issues that we should not divide over. These are issues that should not cause conflict between brothers and sisters. You see, when everything is of ultimate importance, then nothing is important. Notice that a self-important heart is easily offended. A self-important heart interprets things in the worst way possible. A self-important heart looks at others with suspicion assigns the motive, and gives no benefit of the doubt. So can I ask you this morning, does this describe you? Are you like the men of Israel and Judah, fighting over petty things, looking at your brothers and sisters within the body of of Christ with suspicion? Are you allowing the sin of self-importance Breed division in your heart. The problem is that, as we'll see in a bit, the sin of self-important breeds division and it brings division to the church. And division is very dangerous in the life of the church. So much so that in his high priestly prayer, Jesus would ask the Father for unity for his church. Let's keep reading. I want us to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. And here I want us to see the sin of self, how the sin of self-importance causes us to turn our backs on our king. Verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, now there, happened to be, um, <clears throat> now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichriah, Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So here the author introduces a new character. His name is Sheba, and the Bible describes him as a worthless man. <clears throat> In our study of the first and second book of Samuel, we have seen this term, the worthless man, several times. These are people who are rebellious and whose heart is hardened. And here we see then a new guy, his name is Sheba. In this passage, we also see one of the results of letting the sin of self-importance fester. You see, the same men of Israel who were offended because they didn't get to escort David back home are now so quick at turning their backs on God and follow a worthless man. They turned their backs on David... And they did that because of this worthless man. You see, it didn't take much convincing at all. Again, I believe that the reason the author is taking the time to tell us this story is because it continues to show the consequences of David's sin. And it also shows the unrelenting grace of God who no matter what will fulfill his covenant with David. But Shiva, Shiva was a man of the tribe of Benjamin which is the same truth that Saul came from. So for some reason, this guy decides that he is done with David. And as many people do, he thinks he is better without a king. 
I don't know exactly why Sheba feels like David wronged them, but the reality is that he is done with David. And he calls the people of Israel to secede from, God's, from David's kingdom. You see, Sheba also has fallen into the trap of self-importance. Tim Keller says, Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are, con- uh, that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own selves of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And this is Sheba. He thinks he is better off on his own. He thinks he is better off without a king. The problem, though, is that like many who leave their king, he feels the need to recruit others and convinces many to turn their back on David. So here we find two dangers that I want to warn us against. Number one, the people of Israel were willing to turn their backs on their king because they let the sin of self-importance fester. What do I mean by this? Well, when you think too highly of yourself, you put yourself in a vulnerable position to being led astray. When you don't deal with the hurt or offense of others and you let it fester, it weakens your faith and your resolve. Brother, sister, watch your heart and don't let self-importance get in the way of forgiveness and restoration. The second thing I want to warn, warn us against is this. But there are always those who will not only be hostile against their king, but they will also try to take as many with them on their way down. You see, Shiva clearly had an issue with David. Once again, we don't really know why. But it may have been because David um, had um, taken Saul's throne. So he probably felt wronged by David. He probably felt that his family had been wronged by David. But we don't know for sure. What we see in Sheba, though, is an attitude that is very common in our human experience, especially within the church. And I believe that the sin of self-importance led Sheba to think that he didn't need a king. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought, I don't need a king, I can do this on my own? The problem, though, is that Sheba took a step even beyond that. He decided not only that he didn't need a king, but that he was going to take many with him. Brothers and sisters, can I warn you against those who have left the church disgruntled? Maybe they were wronged, or maybe they were hurt. Let me tell you, it's not uncommon to see people who have been hurt by the church under the banner of deconstruction leave the church and try to take as many people with them. Now, I want to be really careful here, because I don't want to downplay their hurt or the evil that I know can at times take place within the walls of the church. That is a reality. I am also very aware that here at Trinity, at some point we will probably unintentionally hurt you at some point. The reason I know that is because I'm involved. (laughs) I am very much aware of my own ability to put my foot in my mouth and hurt others unintentionally. So there is a chance that someone here might at some point hurt you. And I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to justify that in any way. But I want you to hear this. I am deeply sorry if you have been hurt by the church. That is not okay. (laughs) 
And I know that it is the case of many here that are here precisely because they were hurt at other places. And I am so sorry that that happened to you. But can I thank you this morning for not giving up on Christ because of the foolishness of his followers? Thank you for being here despite the foolishness of some of Christ's followers. I also want to clarify something else. I want to say that deconstruction is at times good and necessary. You see, I went through a process of deconstruction, if you will, where I had to unlearn a lot of things that I had learned from the prosperity gospel. Things that were unhelpful. Things that I learned in the church, but were not to be found in scripture. And so it is okay to deconstruct and to unlearn certain things. The problem is when under the banner of deconstruction, some people are led to apostasy. Where people embrace their hurt so tightly that they write their hurt all the way to apostasy. Church, may we be instead like the men of Judah who hear the Bible tells us steadfastly follow their king even in the middle of this mess. Would you read with me now verse 3? And as we read verse 3, I want you to see this, that our sin hurts others even as we try to fix it. Verse 3 is a heartbreaking verse. It says this, it says, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Man, it's a heartbreaking verse. As you may remember, one of the nastiest things Absalom did as he was trying to usurp the throne of David was to try to humiliate him by sexually assaulting his concubines. This was evil. Not only was Absalom wrong in hurting these ladies, but David was also wrong because he had taken more than one wife. So now... David, even as he is trying to do the right thing and undo his mess by housing these ladies and even providing for them, David's still hurting them. You see, he left them shut up until the day of their death. Their king abandoned them. In his attempt to do things right, to undo his own mess, he hurt these ladies. If I'm honest, this is a very hard verse to swallow. And it's even harder to interpret. But what is clear is that this too is a consequence of David's sin. And how his sin still carries serious consequences to those around him. You see, one of the lies of sin is the idea that our sin only affects us. The consequences of our sin are way more far-reaching than we imagine. I want to take a moment here to acknowledge the reality that I know here this morning there are probably women who have been hurt by the sin of selfish men. And I want to say I am so sorry if that is the case for you. But I also want to take the opportunity to remind you that your king is better than David. That your king is sinless and good. That your king will not use you and discard you. 
He will not leave you. He will not forget you. Unlike David, you see, Jesus Christ, our King, will restore you and he will make you flourish. I pray that if this is your case, that you would be able to rest in the presence of our gentle and loving King who gave his life to restore you, who gave his life precisely to heal the evil that was done against you. Our King is greater than David because he will not leave you forgotten. Our King is here for you this morning and he knows of your hurt and he knows of your pain and he wants to restore you. Let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 4 through 13. And here I want us to see that the sin of self-importance leads some to despising our brothers and sisters. Verse 4 says this. It says, Then the king came to Amasa. Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, uh, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he, get him uh, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out uh, after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him uh, with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa left wallowing, um, late, wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And here, once again, we see a follower of the king being discarded and set aside. And it's heartbreaking. Now, you may remember from last week's message that after Joab's, um, murder, of, uh, Joab's murder of Absalom, David had decided to make Amasa um, the commander of the army instead of Joab. It's not clear from the text if that has officially happened yet. But when David needed someone to take care of Sheba, he sent Amasa. For some reason, though, Amasa was delayed and he didn't get there on time. So David, because of the urgency of the task, sends Abishai, Joab's brother. At some point, Amasa catches up with Abishai's army and finds with them Joab, the commander that he was supposed to replace. Joab, the cold-blooded man that he was, grabs Amasa by the beard in a signed of love, grabs him by the beard as to give him a kiss. And as he leans in, he stabs him and kills him. 
Again, we almost hear the echo of Nathan's words to David that the sword would not depart from his house. You see, both Joab and Amasab were David's nephews. They were important in his kingdom. We see Joab, David's nephew, killing Amasab, another one of his nephews. Heartbreaking. But why? Why is Joab doing this? Well, I think once again we see how the sin of self-importance has led Joab to this point. You see, unlike Sheba, Joab is actually part of the king's team. Joab is part of the inner circle of David. And yet, it seems that Joab doesn't truly trust David, and he feels that he has to take care of business himself. Now, this is a pattern that we have seen in Joab before. Remember when he killed Abner? Then he would, call, uh, he would kill Absalom, and now he's killing his other cousin, Amasa. So the danger for David's followers is not only out there with people like Shiva. The danger, it looks like, is also inside the kingdom. There seems to be friendly fire in David's kingdom. Joab is zealous. You see, I think he is convinced that, he, that what he is doing is right for the kingdom. So he slays his cousin, to whom his king had offered mercy, to whom his king had placed in a position of honor. He slays. He despises those who he sees, who he sees as weak, you see. Joab thinks his passion is warranted. But he doesn't get it, does he? He's dealing death to those who his king wants to grant mercy. He can find no place for those who the king has a place for in the kingdom. Church, I think this is unfortunately true of some in the church today. Those within the kingdom, if you will. There is friendly fire within the walls of the church. There are those, you see, who are more interested in winning an argument than fighting for the unity of the church. There are those who are more interested in winning um, of winning a, a, a battle than they are in building up the kingdom of God. There are those who think the only thing Jesus did was to flip tables, and they try to do that continuously. Church, let us be careful that we're not like Joab, who was so quick as discounting those who were on David's side. He was just as quick as discounting him as he would discount those that were against David. I worry that the same thing is true of the church. There are some who think every issue, every issue that they disagree with is the end of, uh, of evangelicalism as we know it. They think that every hill is worth dying on. And for that reason, they are quick to eliminate, to shun, and to vanish those they disagree with. Now notice how one of Joab's men in verse 11 basically says that the only way to follow David is by following Joab. It's Joab's way or the highway. Which reminds us too that Joab is multiplying himself. Do you see that? By the words of this young man, Joab is creating little Joabs. You know, his followers will most likely think that that is the right way to act. And they will be little Joabs in the way that they work for the king. There are those in the church who, like Joab, 
are so focused on winning a battle for the king that they forget that the king has a heart of mercy and grace. Church, let us be careful not to be like Joab. Can I ask you this morning, if this is your instinct, may I plead with you, bring it to the Lord and ask him to soften your heart towards those that he wants to offer mercy. Ask him this morning that he would help you see his heart of mercy and grace towards those that you disagree with. The good news is that just as much damage can be caused by one person, we'll see now how much damage can be prevented by another person, by one that knows the word of God. Would you read with me verses 14 through 21? And here we will see the value and importance of a woman who knows the word of God. Verse 14 says this, it says, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmecah. And all the Bichrites assembled uh, and followed him in. And all the men who were with Job came and besieged them in Abel of Bethmecah. They cast up a mound against the city, and, and it uh, stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Job, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of our servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them ask, <coughs> excuse me, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who, were a peace, who are a peaceable and faithful in, in Israel. I am sorry, I butchered that. Let me read. Verse 19 again. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. There's another, uh, another um, uh, translation. That says, far be it from me to kill. I mean, the guy who continues to murder those within the kingdom. That is not true, he says. But a man of the, kill, uh, of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up, uh, give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off his head, or the, the, the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So here we see the value of a woman who knows and applies the word of God. As Joab and the army pursue Sheba, you see, they make it to this city called Abel. Sheba is hiding within the walls of Abel, him and his people. So Joab and the army are ready to besiege the town. They are putting up a ramp against the wall and they're about to take those walls down until a wise woman shows up to negotiate with Joab. You see, this wise woman saved many people from being slaughtered and a city from being destroyed. But how did she do this? Well, she was able to do that because, of the, because she knew the word of God. She knew that in Deuteronomy 20, there is a procedure that says that if the people within the besieged city respond peaceably, they will not lose their lives. She knew the word of God. Notice how a wise woman was able to de-escalate the situation and reason with a hot-headed man. You know, 
The church needs people of the word. And here at Trinity, we are so blessed to have wise women who know the word. There are some, uh, unfortunately, outside the church who think the Bible is misogynistic and oppresses women. And though the Bible does describe stories of many women being taken advantage of, as we just saw a minute ago, that is because, unfortunately, that's the reality of the world we live in. But the Bible makes it a point every time to highlight wise and faithful women who, despite the cultural disadvantages they faced, were faithful to the Lord. We see in the Bible we find people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Jael, Esther. And in the New Testament we see Mary, Martha, Lydia, Phoebe, and so many others who did not play passive roles in the story of redemption. They did not play secondary parts. They were part of God's plan of redemption all along because they were faithful, wise women of the word. You see, they were part of the plan all along, not only because of the failure of the men around them. Church, let me tell you this morning, just as we need men like David, who, are, who like David, I'm sorry, are after God's own heart, we also need women who, like this wise lady and many others, are faithfully courageous. Dear sisters, we need you. We need you. And can I tell you, I'm so thankful for the faithful women that love the word here at Trinity. I'm so thankful for you. You know, I'm so thankful for them that last night, as I'm going over my message, I sent my message to one of these ladies. And I'm like, would you look over my message? Because this is how much I respect them and love them. Dear sisters, we need you. We value you here at Trinity. And we're thankful for you. This leads us to verses 23 to 25. And here I want you to see that despite our foolishness and our messes, the king remains on the throne. After Joab returns to the city, I want us to read... um, What the author tells us in verse 23, he says, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now this feels a little random. The author goes from telling us a story about a traitor and how he was dealt with, to then just give it as a report on the kingdom. Now, you may not remember this, but in chapter 8, we saw a very similar report. It actually, it is almost word by word the same report. Now, the reason why we got that report back then was because things were going great for the kingdom of Israel. You see, because of the message that we've seen in the life of David, we may be tempted to think that David was a bad king. But in reality... David was the best king Israel ever had. David was a great king. The problem was that he was human. He was broken. And he was limited. Now, you might not remember right now, but things were great. Before David's sin, Israel was at peace. He was prosperous. The Lord was blessing Israel. And so in chapter 8, the author gives us a report. And tells us of all these positions that he just read right now. Now why is this important? Because I want you to see 
that now the kingdom is not where it was before. Right now the kingdom is unstable. It's weak. And the author gives us this report again. And guess what? Despite all the wars, all the betrayals, we have seen in the last few chapters, David remains on the throne. Now this is good news. Because even if we, uh, if we still see the very real consequences of his sin, we are reminded that David's reign continues, not because he deserves it, but because God had made a covenant with him that one day from his line would come a greater king. A king that, unlike David, would not be foolish or weak. One that would reign with equity and justice. A good king, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Church, the same is true of our lives. No matter what mess we see around us, even if they are of our own making, if we are in Christ, we can be assured that our King is in control. No matter what's going on in your life this day, no matter what mess you see around you, be assured this morning that our King sits on the throne and He is in control. Church, this morning, we saw that how the sin of self-importance wreaked havoc in the kingdom of David. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But I also want you to see um, that you too are often tempted to give into this sin of self-importance. I am often tempted of giving into this. Let, let me tell you how difficult it is to not be tempted by the sin of self-importance whenever you get to speak to 200 people that are listening to you. It is a real temptation for all of us. Now, we saw how self-importance, if left unchecked, can lead to division and even apostasy. But church, it doesn't have to be that way. The sin of self-importance comes from a need to feel valued and valuable. But for those who are in Christ, we do not have to fight for that. Work, there you go. You see, because of Christ's work on the cross, you, <clears throat> hello, sorry, you have, all right, something's going on here. <laughs> you see, because of Christ's work on the cross, you and I have a perfect standing before the king, and we have nothing to prove. As Karen reminded me yesterday, we don't need to be perfect because we are already perfectly loved. Church in Christ, we are fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted. In Him, we are made new. Dane Ortland says that there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it. For a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it. For your union with Christ or from it. Brother, sister, you do not have to earn God's smile. If you are in Christ, God sees you and he smiles. Church, you and I do not have to prove our worth by comparing ourselves to others. Christ has already freed us from the need to sell ourselves. When we understand what this means, we are free to no longer live for ourselves or to live for the acceptance of others. 
but are free to live for the glory of God and in service of others. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 3 to 8, and with this I'm going to close. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, church, he died so that you and I might live free from the pressure of this world. Free from the need to sell ourselves to impress others. You see, because he died on that cross, you and I are no longer enemies, but we are now children. Church, would you stand with us this morning? I respond to the Lord with our singing.